LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Dr. Amit Goswami, who joins us to discuss his book, God is Not Dead what quantum physics tells us about our origins and how we should live. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? These are the eternal questions which have forever faced mankind and to which we still do not have answers. Are we children of God, created in his image as the great world religions proclaim? Or are we merely the chance result of random evolution, helpless, hopeless beings adrift in a meaningless Darwinian universe. Some say our designer was more intelligent than that. Maybe we fell to Earth from Mars or some other nearby planet, perhaps even one that no longer exists. Tiamat? Nibiru? Were they real? Perhaps our origins are out there in the stars. The Pleiades system, which lies over 100 parsecs from Earth. Does our creator call it home? There are those who believe that humans are little more than genetically modified slaves, farmed on a prison planet by aliens who may even now walk among us. Are we watched over by the Watchers, the god giants of Sumerian myth and legend? Of all the teachings and theories of mankind's origin, purpose and destiny, none is totally consistent, coherent or complete. In God is Not Dead, however, Dr. Goswami asserts that quantum physics holds the key to all the unsolved mysteries of the nature and origin of life. He explains why we are here, where we have come from, and where we are going. Hello and welcome, Amit Goswami, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Good to be with you, Greg. Today, Amit, we're going to address three of the big kind of universal cosmic questions that have confronted humanity, well, seemingly forever. And that is why we're here, where we come from, and where we're going. Now, religion and science, both are their versions of this. And when we look more closely at it, we find that although both seem to have part of the truth, they feel incomplete. And in your book, uh, which is God is Not Dead, what quantum physics tells us about our origins and how we should live, you have explored the realms of quantum physics and discovered something that you call quantum consciousness. That is to say, basically, a universal consciousness, which in the past, some people have called God. And through this work, you've unearthed the fact that there absolutely is a purpose to creation and existence. And in fact, through your work, you've posited that we can answer the, the three big questions, why we're here, where we come from, and where we're going. Well, uh, what is happening, uh, Greg, is an integration. Uh, yes, uh, it is true that in the past, science has 
claimed uh, things about the universe that is in contradiction to what the spiritual traditions have said. Uh, but now the new science based on quantum physics uh, makes it very clear that science is not in contradiction with what the spiritual traditions say about some of the things about the world. For example, in the old science, based on Newtonian physics, we had the concept that the world is deterministic, determined by the physical forces, initial conditions, and all that. The new science holds a completely different view. Quantum physics is a physics of possibilities. Here, um, you never get any hint of how possibilities become actuality. In fact, uh, there is a mathematical theorem that can be proved within the premise of quantum physics called von Neumann's theorem, proven by the great mathematician John von Neumann, which says that material interactions can never convert waves of possibility, which is quantum waves, quantum nature of the object, into particles of actuality. So therefore, uh, what explains the observer effect? Whenever an observer sees a quantum object, the observer always sees a localized particle, a localized object. So how does the actualization, localization, manifestation happen? This is the perpetual questions that open up a concept that spiritual traditions call downward causation. Now agree that spiritual traditions um, also call the agent of downward causation by a mysterious entity, God, and then they attribute various, um, very human, personal aspect to God, which confuses people. You know, uh, for example, in the West, there is a tendency, even today, for many people to see God as a white-bearded guy, a kind of old and magnificent and benevolent fellow, uh, sitting on a throne, uh, throwing judgments at human beings when they die. This is a very simplistic picture, obviously, could not be scientifically upheld, and scientists naturally scorn at such ideas. I don't blame them. But that is not necessarily the only way to picture God. Um, actually, if you look at spiritual traditions from the base, what happens, their picture of God uh, radically changes. God, they say, is the creator. That is the principle. It's the creation principle. God is the creation principle behind reality. Is there a creation principle? Is there a causation principle outside of material causation? Quantum physics is saying there has to be. Otherwise, quantum physics cannot be explained. How possibilities become actual events of experience just cannot be explained without assuming that there is downward causation. So my proof of God, why God is not dead in that book, starts with this idea that quantum physics forces us downward causation, the concept of downward causation. Take off all the garbage images that we have about God and take it as an impersonal, objective God that is just the agent of downward causation, including creation aspects. Then you have proven the existence of God. Only thing that you have to do now is that quantum physics also lays out properties of downward causation. For example, uh, we'll uh, discuss more about details. Uh, one property is signalless communication, non-locality. This is a property that can be verified in the laboratory. And if you have verified this property, this property does not exist for material interactions. So you, can, you have distinguishing property for this downward causation. 
you have a way of telling that this could not be a material interaction. It has to be something different. And therefore, you have an experimental way of telling that there is downward causation. We have today dozens of experiments that verifies that, yes, there are such interactions which are specifically non-local, signal-less communication. And that is the cinch of the new science, that we not only have theorized about God, quantum physics forces us to theorize, but it is more than theory. It's now verified with experimental data. Now, when you came to introduce the word God into your work or present your work with God as like the context, did you think twice about that? Because obviously it's provocative and it's a very good way to grab people's attention and get their imagination. But of course, it brings baggage with it as well. And there may be people who have, have not looked properly at your work because you've used the word God. Yes, I agree with you. Um, it probably did not serve its purpose, Greg. I um, I realized that after I um, uh, published the book um, by seeing the reaction. It did neither satisfy the um, fundamentalist Christian or any Christian for that matter, although there was an appendix in the books uh, called uh, Quantum Physics and the Teachings of Jesus where I showed that Jesus's Bible is absolutely compatible with quantum physics, but that did not seem to make any difference in the mindset of most Christians, at least in America. Um, and it, of course, uh, turned off the uh, material scientists because they immediately uh, felt that I'm on the side of the uh, traditions, the religions, and I'm proposing something that uh, is just one of those things that religious proponents of um, religious beliefs uh, constantly bring out in the vein of creation science. So, uh, unfortunately, that was the case. And so today, when I write, I'm very careful uh, not to use the word God exclusively. Instead, use the word quantum consciousness more and more. Our consciousness as a non-local field, that kind of thing is also used by Fredel and Wolf and others, uh, Edwin Laszlo, for example. So that's probably safer. But my intention uh, should be very clear. The intention is to recognize that the work that has been done on this new paradigm, and believe me, it will replace the scientific materialist paradigm because that paradigm is now a dead zombie. It cannot be revived because it's experimentally approved. So sooner or later, we are going to have this new paradigm in place. But in the meantime, what's the best way of hastening the process, I think, is to probably cater first to the uh, scientific materialists, because you know what, on the whole, they are a more open bunch than the religious uh, people. I'm sorry to say this, but even Indians, um, I come from India, even Indians, uh, where Hinduism is a very open religion, at least I always thought that it was, but it is not so anymore. Uh, Hindus have become kind of um, fundamentalist too, and it's their picture or else. So everybody in the religious communities, except of course there are mavericks, and you see them right along with us in the new paradigm, uh, but um, more or less the picture is very, um, very, very uh, confused because of 
religions taking the fundamentalist view that it is my way or highway and uh, scientific materialists uh, mostly uh, unless you use the proper politically correct word they mostly disregard your work and this situation perpetuates. Now of course there are a raft of real phenomena you know measurable observable phenomena which are not accounted for by materialist reductionism you know we think of telepathy ESP our dreams, spontaneous healing, past life memories, near-death experiences. A lot of you touch upon all these in your book, but materialistic science can't even explain life. I mean, that's the single biggest thing. Like, how did it come into being? They have lots of biology textbooks that will tell, give you aspects of this process, but they don't know where life comes from, how it originates. You know, because life can only come from life. It can't come from something that's was never alive or is dead. So yeah. where where did life begin? And it's these big questions that are not answered. And yet a lot of people's popular perception is that materialistic science has basically told us 99% of what there is to know. Yeah, you know, the most unfortunate thing is the what happened historically. Historically, this question of the creation of life and evolution are the basic questions where science and religion differed. And of course, um, uh, the Christians had a position which is uh, creationism, which is very hard to defend in a scientific way because there is no proposed experiment that could verify it uh, in the way that it is proposed by the Christian uh, fundamentalists. Um, so scientists developed an antagonism, antagonism so much so that in their own community, biologists are very closed to questioning the standard model. Standard model being that um, life got to be chemical, uh, biochemical, and um, Darwin's theory is sacrosanct. You cannot question those two. Uh, you cannot question the basic premise of molecular biology. The biology is all chemistry of molecules, and you cannot question Darwin's theory. That becoming uh, the case is uh, really uh, blocking the progress of biology itself. The truth is, as Paul Davis uh, started pointing out back in the 1990s, uh, with some very powerful books, I thought, um, the thing is that, you know, you cannot give a plausible model of origin of life based on chemistry alone. You just cannot do it. There is no way of doing it. And when it comes to experimental data, although for a while it looked like we can probably make macromolecules, even self-replicating molecules, but it very clearly became clear that that's limited. If you make a uh, Darwin's theory on the basis of self-replicating molecule, um, you cannot go very far. You certainly cannot produce from a self-replicating molecule to a self-reproducing life. You just cannot, that step just cannot be taken. The, uh, this is the point that uh, Davis makes very powerfully in his, some of his books, which is that the, there are fundamentally two oppositional principles at work in the question of origin of life. So how did life originate? It can originate only if there is a scope for downward causation. And more than that, there, is, there has to be a scope for uh, these morphogenetic fields that Rupert Sheldrake has introduced into the picture, which gives a new meaning to what in ancient times used to be called the vital body. There got to be a scope for vital energy. Biologists talk about it. You know, the mavericks among the biologists 
uh, do talk about it. Uh, they talk about that biology today lives out uh, living. Uh, for example, Niles Eldridge uh, has written a nice book about uh, these living aspects of biology. But you know, only in the popular writing. When they write uh, their scientific papers in scientific journals, unless they're uh, very much uh, conservative in terms of what they propose, these papers cannot be published in biological journals. Just as in today, American Physical Society has an unofficial rule that if you mention ESP or something like that, non-local uh, aspects in the macroscopic domain, in the human domain, you cannot publish a physics paper in any American Physical Society journal. So this kind of thing, which, is, which was unheard of, because science, if anything, was supposed to be open. But now, you know, science has become very close. So science has become fundamentalist. And scientific materialism is actually a fundamentalist kind of belief system. So we have a sort of religion, you can call it scientific religion, and then versus Christianity, which is obviously a religion, and there are dogmas, and, and you just uh, turn between two dogmas, rock and a hard place, and uh, we don't know where to turn. The solutions are right there. You know, I have been talking about it. Uh, Fred Allen Wolf has been talking about it. Henry Staff has been talking about it. Arvin Laszlo, names go on and on and on and on, Deepak Chopra, but we do not make very much of a dent in either the Christian belief system nor the scientific materialist biological belief system. And so uh, this is why I have started a movement called quantum activism, where I'm taking it to the people because the issues are quite simple actually. Uh, thinking people certainly can understand the philosophical difficulties with both positions, both fundamentalist positions, and also can see how quantum physics solves one by one, one by one, the problem of life, the problem of consciousness, one by one, and how when we accept these solutions, our society can be reconstructed so that we gain, regain that force that, uh, that gave us enlightenment that gave us uh, those great improvements in the 18th century in our very lifestyle, democracy, capitalism. All that uh, momentum is now lost because you have bogged down into this polarized, polarized mindset. Quantum physics is nothing new. I mean, it's like uh, over 100 years old, the science, basically. But it has been marginalized in importance and confined to the sort of micro world of particles. And one of the main objections to some of the ideas that you're putting forward is that it doesn't apply in the macro world of people and things. But I always thought that was a bit illogical because how could it, it must apply to the macro world because just because we can't see at the sort of molecular level, we can't see them with our naked eye doesn't mean that the behavior wouldn't be the same. Why would one molecule behave in a certain way? And then if you put a bazillion of them together to make a macro world object that it, they would cease to behave in that way. Yeah, the point is that not only uh, theoretically you see it, as John von Neumann uh, pointed out very cogently, you know, there is the von Neumann theorem that the quantum effects continue all the way to the macro measurement apparatuses like cameras and computers and what have you. Um, but it's experimentally verified today. There was a program called uh, Superconducting Quantum Interference Device, which took, the, took up the problem of demonstrating the uh, existence of these quantum superpositions of possibility that produces interference effect. You know, if two waves 
are put together, like in a double slit arrangement. A wave goes through a double slit, becomes two waves, and then these two waves interfere. Uh, that interference pattern is a absolute proof that there is a wave. So uh, that kind of thing can be produced even at the macro level. So there is no doubt today that quantum physics is the correct physics all the way to the macro level. Measurements clearly show that. So uh, there is no reason for people to um, debate this anymore. And also the data on transport potential, which I make a big case of it, for which now there are two dozen experiments supporting it at different laboratories, you know, where um, brain activities from one brain is transferred to another brain without an electrical connection. This is such a clear evidence. Only difference is that the two observers have to become correlated through meditating together with an intention that they will have such direct communication. If they don't, if they don't correlate, if they don't meditate, no transfer potential. But if they correlate, if they meditate together with that intention, then uh, invariably uh, there is this transfer potential that show up. So, uh, you know, these experiments are now available for anybody to examine. This is why my challenge, just get into the new science, become a quantum activist, and you will see the relevance of this new science in your life in the experimental data that you can yourself evaluate. You don't have to depend, you know, like that Bob Dylan song, you don't have to depend on the weatherman to see which way the wind blows. You really don't. You don't need the specialist scientist to tell you what is reality, what is correct description of reality. You can see for yourself. And people have to take charge. They have to see for themselves and force this um, ivory tower scientist uh, to change their mind, and the ivory tower religion is likewise. One of the sort of central concepts or something that people will come across very quickly if they start to explore quantum physics and the nature of reality as it applies to humans and the human experience is the idea of consensus reality, which is basically that the world appears to be the way that it is because we all agreed on it sort of beforehand sort of thing. And there's been a lot written about uh, along the lines of in the New Age literature that we create our own reality, et cetera, et cetera. And you have a section in the book which basically deals with the question. And a lot of critics have brought this up and said, well, if we can just change our own reality, then why don't we just do so? Why don't we make a perfect world? And the section in your book is, is actually called We Create Our Own Reality, But. <laughs> yeah, we create our own reality, but. And this but is a big but because the criterion is where does the power of downward causation come from? What do we need to do? Um, the theory, quantum theory clearly shows that it does not come when we lose that properties that are necessary for downward causation, non-locality being one, discontinuity is another. Uh, so unless you can establish yourself to be part of that non-local consciousness, for example, in the experiment that I referred to, transfer potential, unless the two people meditate together with the intention that they will have signalless communication, they do not establish signalless communication. And even then, only one in four succeeds. So uh, that means that even if you just go through the motion, that's not enough. You really have to get into the non-local consciousness that, that ain't always going to happen. But there is no evidence, even outside of it. Um, this is the, the great contribution of Dean Radden, who takes random number generators to rooms where people meditate together versus other situations like a corporate boardroom. 
And he finds astoundingly random number generators, which are based on quantum processes of radioactivity. Uh, radioactive random decays are converted into random arrays of numbers by a computer. And you get arrays of zeros and ones. They should be random. But in the presence of people meditating, they become non-random. And in the uh, presence of corporate boardroom, people talking about their selfish interest, it, it doesn't change. The behavior remains random. So this kind of thing proves that meditation does something special, which is to establish us into that non-local consciousness. And notice the parallel with uh, religious teaching. Jesus did say, it's very famous thing, when two or more um, uh, get together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So uh, this kind of thing uh, is, is, is really very helpful for an ordinary person, non-physicist, to see that the new science is relevant and it is not by any means a simple recipe to change the world. It's not simple by any means, but it's not that complicated either because people can, uh, as this experiment suggests, people can by uh, simple procedures such as meditation get into the non-local consciousness and take charge of uh, creative downward causations. Perhaps we just say a word. I'm just thinking a technical point here that uh, downward causation, uh, well, we just say the upward causation is basically where the scientific theories are at the minute. That would be, you know, the theory of evolution, for example, Darwinian theory. That involves creation by um, upward causation. So perhaps you could just say for people, just a little a bullet point definition of downward causation. Yeah, absolutely. So why do we call upward causation? Material interactions are called upward causation. Why? Because um, the picture is reductionistic. Uh, it starts at the base, elementary particles, very, very, very small objects making up atoms, bigger objects uh, making up molecules, making up cells and other uh, macroscopic objects. And then some of these cells are neurons, they make up the brain and we have consciousness. Or some of these objects make up a cell uh, and cell is a living object. So in this way, we have uh, cause rising upward, but never make the mistake. It always caused, basic cause lies in the interactions of elementary particles. If this picture were right, then whatever happens at the level of the brain is really interactions of elementary particles. And, and just imagine how much stretch it is to think that what you do, you know, what you think of exertion of your free will, or even when you are creative, discovering something that nobody ever thought about, nobody ever perceived, meaning this way that you are perceiving it now. These scientists are claiming that comes from the level of the elementary particles. So they are literally claiming that elementary particles have a sense of your meaning, your values, even physical laws. Is that true? No, it's not true. It's demonstratively not true. Everything about the elementary particles can be explained by their physical properties, mass, charge, and a few other things. They do not require all these extra characteristics. They do not have these extra characteristics. In fact, Roger Penrose have succeeded in proving a mathematical theorem that matter cannot process meaning. So this kind of nonsense, which can be called zombie thinking, really can be discarded by any thinking person by actually looking at situation. Once I was giving a talk at Princeton University uh, in the uh, religious studies department, and a scientist um, starts heckling me, 
And I, I told him that, how do you ever believe that you are a zombie? Uh, seriously, how can you take that idea seriously when you have a 200 IQ plus uh, situation uh, of a brain and you think yourself to be creative? How, how, do you, how do you live with yourself with this kind of contradictory belief system? Say, shut up. He shut up for the rest of the lectures. So the point is that uh, this is individual, however. Individually, everybody knows that, the, that this is a zombie kind of belief system. So, but uh, when it comes to collective, they hold on to the idea because, of course, political, economic reasons. So what you have to do is to, we have to reformulate uh, our society. So I'm suggesting very gross changes, very um, uh, grassroots changes in our economic system itself to get over these uh, hurdles. If we consider the idea of evolution, specifically Darwinian evolution, that we, everything, we and everything around us arose from mud accidentally for no reason, uh, for no purpose, we, we then look at all the wonder and the awe of existence and we're asked to be, you know, consider that as a pointless random accident as well. And then we look at the complexity of the brain and the, the wider universe, um, even the mysterious origins of life I spoke about earlier, and then concepts such as love and creativity, things that we all experience, and then consciousness itself. The idea that all of that comes from mud for no reason it's it's just nihilistic, and I think everyone, if they're if they're open and honest with themselves, they can sense. And I use the word advisedly. They can sense that it's not that way. <laughs> yeah, we can sense it, and we can also today, thanks to data, we can prove it. Uh, really, the 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 fact is that matter alone is inadequate to explain our experiences. Now, uh, the only recourse really uh, that science has, scientific materialist science has, is to say that all of our inner experiences other than sensing, everything comes from matter itself, which is to say they're epiphenomenon of matter, and therefore they don't have any causal efficacy. That's one thing, and the other thing they have to say is that you can never measure this inner stuff, and because you cannot measure it, um, they are unquantifiable, they are always vague. Both of these contentions uh, have been proven wrong now, because the inner stuff does have causal efficacy. For example, you know, you mentioned uh, telepathy. Today we have distant viewing experiments where one person thinks something and other person draws a picture of that. What does that mean? That takes us... Um, uh, to the idea that information is being transferred. And if, if information is transferred, you can do something on the basis of that information that was transferred to you. So there is causal efficacy in two people communicating at a distance without exchanging signals. Now, this is just one example. You mentioned quantum healing. There, the causal efficacy is even more clear. If mind is brain phenomenon, brain acting on the brain without a cause, healing a person, that's serious business. When overnight cancer, an entire body mass of cells, that just dissolves because I mentally thought something of why uh, I should not be sick. Experiments are clearly showing, they agree that they are not mass experiments, they are individual data. But the point is that for biological systems, individual data is very collectible and it makes sense. 
individual data, in fact, is the way that we can collect collective data for biological systems. It's very clear. So, time and time again, the causal efficacy is very clear. Is it also very clear that, that uh, these quantities are measurable? This is the thing. Of course, you can give uh, alternative explanations, and scientific materialists do. But uh, today, we are in a situation where mind is being measured by those uh, MRI pictures, the magnetic resonance imaging techniques, which images the brain and how the brain changes with our thoughts. The scientific materialist interpretation of this is that, oh, that is showing that mind is brain. But there is easily another explanation of it, which is that mind and brain are correlated. And what we are seeing is that mental effects affect the brain, and by measuring the brain, we can therefore measure the mind. This is common occurrence in physics. We can cannot measure the quarks, for example, elementary particles at the base level directly, but we can measure their indirect effects. So that's how we make measurements in physics today, which is accepted. Similarly, we cannot measure the mind directly except us experiencing it, but not with objective experiments, but mind affects the brain, and we can measure the effects on the brain directly, and therefore indirectly can measure the mind. Same thing with vital energy. Vital energy used to be a very fair idea. Of course, miraculously, it cures, like in homeopathy, like in Chinese medicine, acupuncture, and Ayurveda, and all that traditions. And we have poo-pooed it uh, from a scientific materialist point of view. But today, we can measure the effect on the body of these vital energies. Emotion affects our electromagnetic body at the surface. And we can measure this electromagnetic effect by such devices as, as are called biophoton emission, Carnian photography, and all that. We cannot go into details in such short time, but the fact is that vital energy changes, just as the mental changes, are measurable now. So both of the arguments, is there causality at this level? Is there measurability? Both of these have been answered in favor of developing a science of experience. And quantum physics is capable of doing it. And, you know, my work shows that it is quite viable. And so, you know, as I said, paradigm will shift. The mainstream science uh, attitude to these matters seems to be that if they can't account for it with their paradigms and models, then it doesn't matter. It really is that simple sometimes. You know, only matter matters. We can't explain it. It's not significant. Until they perhaps do explain something, then it pick up. They decide it's significant then because they can explain it. But this gulf between science and spirituality is relatively recent. Um, it's not, I mean, obviously thousands of years, even a conservative thousands of years of human documented existence. It, it's uh, science and spirituality were, were much closer at, at times in the past. And in fact, at certain periods in history, it seems it was one, almost one discipline. Actually, Greg, if you look at the history, it's very interesting. Whenever science and spirituality have been able to see eye to eye and have been able to make the pragmatic reconciliatory approach, like it's in the age of enlightenment, we human uh, societies have made great progress. Whenever they have been totally oppositional, which has happened before, today it's the dominance of the scientific materialist point of view. Uh, in the Middle Ages, Dark Ages, it was the dominance of religious point of view over science. So science has been uh, degraded at some periods of history. And those are the periods where the two did not see eye to eye are the worst periods of humanity. Whenever they have been able to live together 
at least with benign neglect, we have done great. And today, the big news, of course, is that we don't need to just uh, coexist. We can integrate. We can truly integrate with the help of quantum physics and quantum ideas. We can truly integrate and develop a science of our whole experience. We can include mentation. We can include feelings. We can include even intuition in the way we do science apart from sensing. So why should we uh, not take the benefit of this new science? Just imagine the impact on uh, our economics. If we can make economic products out of vital energies. And I'm, I'm, I have a few ideas that are in the hopper that um, actual businesses are considering. Nobody has produced anything yet, but they're considering uh, going into production of vitalized products. Uh, it will uh, certainly produce an enormous boost of economics all, uh, economies all over the world. How many cell phones can you go on producing if, if that were the only answer to new technology? You can't really go very far with computers and communication technology. Uh, but new avenues, why would they open? The scientific materialists have not come up with a single new idea in 50, 60 years. All of the ideas today that businesses run and thrive, they're all conceived in the 1950s and 60s. So considering that, we are in dire need of new arenas of creativity and new arenas for economic expansion. This new science is going to provide those. And my suspicion is that that is really what is going to change the paradigm. Because if you go back to the history of science, again, you know, uh, 17th century uh, had all of Newtonian ideas developed very, very powerfully. But nothing much happened uh, in terms of societal acceptance of uh, the, the uh, modern science. What changed is the industrial revolution that took place in the 18th century. That changed everything. So I think similar technological revolution has to take place with the ideas of the new science, and that will change everything. Darwinian evolution, which we've mentioned a couple of times, that really is a central plank of modern materialistic sciences um, worldview, as it were. But one of the things that you address in the book, which I particularly liked, were the gaps in the fossil record. Because when I was growing up, like a lot of small boys, I was very interested in dinosaurs. So I read a lot about the dinosaurs and about how life evolved after they were wiped out or died out. And one thing I could never get straight in my head was, well, OK, I can see some links here. I can see a little dinosaur a bit bird-like and then it has feathers. There's one halfway house and there's a, you know, a complete bird. It's not reptilian at all. But I thought, well, if this has happened through all the other species, there must be buried in the ground fossils showing all of the interim stages. And there must be thousands of interim stages because Darwinian theory tells us that evolution is slow and constant. But the evidence for that is not there. No, the evidence is just not there. So biologists themselves um, certainly have thought about this. And um, I mentioned Niles Eldridge before. Eldridge and Gould gave us that theory of um, punctuated equilibrium, which clearly shows that there are two tempos of biological evolution. They accepted, they produced data. But of course, you know, the, the criticism from the biological community, the pressure must have been heavy because they retracted eventually in the favor of a, a very um, iffy scenario called geographical isolation as an explanation of punctuated equilibrium. I won't go into the details, but they're they're vain. They're not scientific. They're pseudoscience. Why? Because these ideas cannot be verified in any kind of ways. 
The, what I suggest is that no, these punctuation marks are real. There really are two tempos of evolution, not because of any kind of uh, optimistic scenario like uh, geographic isolation, but instead there really are two tempos of evolution because one is the quantum tempo, one is when approximate classical physics takes over. That's the Darwinian slow tempo. So nobody is denying the validity of Darwinian evolution for some of the evolutionary epochs, but there are these rapid epochs, very quick changes. And those quick changes have to be explained as quantum leaps, discontinuous transitions that quantum physics allows. How does quantum physics get into biology so very much and explains a lot of things? Because the same thinking, not only explains the fossil gaps, but the same thinking explains a very wonderful thing that even Darwin worried about. How does a complex organ get produced at all with the Darwinian motif of changes? Because every change has to be tested against uh, nature, natural selection. Most changes are not beneficial. What good is one thousandth of an eye? a question that Darwin himself asked. What good is one thousandth of an eye? So obviously one little change would just be discarded by nature, by natural selection, it would be thrown away, it would not be preserved. So it's a huge question of biology. How do these little changes preserve, survive natural selection and become available for later development of a complex organ? The new science has a very, very wonderful, simple and elegant explanation. It happens because these changes are quantum changes, these genetic changes are quantum changes, they're possible changes, they're not actual changes. They become actualized only when the organ is actually developed and the organism leaves that organ. That leaving that organ is the actualization. That's the collapse of the quantum possibility wave into actuality. So all these changes wait, wait in limbo, in potentia, until, just like creativity, until it's ready to be created by downward causation. So the details are, I wrote a book on this called Creative Evolution. Creativity is an essential component of evolution because otherwise we cannot explain this fast tempo of evolution, these gaps in the fossil record. And, and once we do that, once we introduce creativity, we introduce something else, which is very, very important, which you already have mentioned. We bring in purposiveness because creativity is purposive. We always are creative because we are looking for something. We are looking for something with a purpose and meaning. And, and so purposiveness comes back in biology. And look, every biologist knows. If you look at the record, there's just no doubt that there is purposiveness because the fossil record clearly shows, even a child can see it. You take a child to a Smithsonian institution and very soon the child will comment on the fact that, ah, I can tell the arrow of time because the fossils are becoming more and more complex. But Darwinian theory has no explanation of why fossils should go from simple to complex. This arrow of time, looking at the fossil record, you can tell the direction of time. This is something that Darwinian theory just cannot explain. So what is the explanation? Explanation is the purposiveness of evolution. The direction is given by this creative leaps, quantum leaps, which brings in the directionality. Is human beings the top of the totem pole of biological evolution? You bet. Does that mean that we cannot evolve any further? No, of course not. We can evolve even further. 
So human being is not the end point of it, but right now we are at the top of the hip. And therefore you do have special responsibility. All these questions now can be addressed. You know, Darwinian theory taken uh, literally has made us into very irresponsible creatures because we don't realize that we are more evolved than chimpanzees and others, and therefore we have more responsibility. Darwin's, Darwin's theory, we are nothing. There is no purposiveness, so we can behave just like animals or worse. It doesn't really matter. But that is just not the case. We really do have responsibility. We've been hinting at some of these points, the three big questions that I opened up with, uh, you know, where we come from, why we're here, where we're going. And perhaps we could look at those, you know, briefly in, in terms of quantum consciousness. And as far as uh, where we come from then, that essentially, would you characterize it as, well, it's, this is quantum consciousness having an experience in this physical reality, in this 3D realm? Yes, it, it is like this. Um, consciousness has many values. Consciousness has many possibilities. And the world exists as possibilities within consciousness. Then the purpose of consciousness is to manifest these possibilities. Actually, Carl Jung, this great psychologist, uh, said something like this. The, the purpose of conscious experience is to make the unconscious conscious. So we are making more and more the unconscious, the quantum possibilities, bring it into consciousness. How do we do it? We do it by representation. Just as we make uh, in a computer, we can represent our thoughts as software. Similarly, uh, the whole purpose of evolution is to represent the subtle ideas of consciousness, including uh, the biology, including the mind, all these are subtle ideas of consciousness that are being gradually represented. The representation first was of the biological arena, the vital body, the morphogenetic fields were being represented, the, the, the forms of the biological system to carry out biological functions. And those biological functions can be pretty lofty. Like, you know, we do have the capacity of love that comes from our biological uh, structure. Sexuality is an entry point to love. Um, and higher uh, biological functions too. They are built into uh, the biological system. But when the brain develops, that's a significant change. And now you have the capacity of making representations of the mind. So this um, is going on, the age of the mind, uh, mind being more and more represented in the brain. This is what is going on for the last uh, many millennia. And um, in the future, uh, you know, uh, thinkers like Tehradi thinkers like Sri Aurobindo in India, they think that there could even be another age, which would be the supramental age, where we can even represent even higher, higher uh, possibilities of the uh, of consciousness into the physical, and then would be would be suprahuman, super mind. That's Aurobindo's term for this thing. And um, Teardi Shadda has similarly talked about the Omega point. That's when the Omega point will arrive when all of us will basically live happily ever after in a heaven realized on earth itself. But uh, let alone these lofty images, right now we are in the process of developing the mind. Uh, anthropologists have laid out that we have gone through the age of the physical mind, mind uh, giving meaning to physical world, hunters and gatherers. Then we have the uh, vital mind, mind giving some language, some representation to feeling, not entirely finished. 
and then we at the agricultural age we came to the uh, what we call the mental mind or the rational mind this is where we are now but we are a little bit stuck now um, and variety of reasons too one of the main reason is that we never really integrated feelings and thinking so we got to integrate the feelings of thinking but the next part of the mind is the most interesting because this is called the intuitive mind using aurobindo's terminology and this is very interesting because we give value and meaning to our intuitions. Uh, intuitions like what? Like love, like justice. You see how much attention all over the world is being given to the archetype of justice today. So we are making progress. This would be unthinkable. The kind of thing we have gone through in 20th century, you know, emancipation of women uh, and now the emancipation of gays, uh, this would be unthinkable even 100 years ago. So just look at the progress, look at the rapidity of the progress we are making in the representation of the archetype of justice. So uh, we are moving somewhere, Greg. I mean, this is the thing that makes me very hopeful, that in spite of all this struggle, in spite of all this polarization, in spite of all these political motives, uh, both religion side and the scientific side, still humanity as a whole is making huge progress. One of the things that tickled me most about uh, the, the central idea in your book, just to remind listeners that your book, God is Not Dead, was the idea that, you know, so we're quantum consciousness and there's this quantum collapse into manifestation, the object to evolve and become more complex. And the, the idea of you just mentioned the omega point, that how much that resonated with a sort of familiar story because it's physical reality coming into being in one fell swoop. The Bible speaks about humans being created in the image of God. And then, of course, the idea that the purpose is to become more godly, you know, to evolve, which is more or less what you're saying. So it's interesting how that seems to have a resonance with ancient spiritual teachings. Absolutely. But you have to take the spiritual teachings a little metaphorically. For example, God uh, makes humans in his or her own image. That has to be understood properly. Image making in this context means representation making. So God's ideas are being represented in the human being the, the most in the animal kingdom. The uh, mind is very little represented in the lower animals. Even chimpanzees hardly have uh, what we can call the mind. But with human beings, uh, from the get-go, uh, mind was quite active. And of course, with the discovery of language, uh, it just you just took off because the representation became much more complex and you know, sophisticated. So in this way, uh, um, the fact of being a human is such a great event. The human birth is so precious. This is why religions have done a very good service of always emphasizing humanity. Humanity, being a human, is such a precious thing. You know, they tell us constantly, don't waste the human life because it's such a precious thing. You have such capacities to manifest, give such potential, and not to waste that potential. You know, we have created constitutions world over, where the Constitution declares all people are created equal. Actually, the correct uh, statement, quantum statement, would be all people are created with equal potential. Um, but however it is, if we concentrate on manifesting the potential that we have, the quantum potential, the infinite potential that you can access through our quantum consciousness, 
then the world can change. And, and, and in the process, when we do that, when we align ourselves with the evolutionary process of making the unconscious conscious, that alignment itself makes our life so satisfactory. It really reflects in the day-to-day -day living. Instead of being a pessimist, instead of being a, a realist, instead of being always pragmatic and unhappy, you become optimistic, you become creative, you become satisfied. Which way do you want to live with always thinking that the glass is half empty or the glass is half full? This is the question we can ask in the affirmative towards the half full if we start becoming a quantum activist, if we start putting the quantum message in our life. Just zoom out a little bit in terms of this idea of quantum collapse and this reality coming into being, if I can use that word. Does that have any correlation with the with the idea of the Big Bang? Yes, it, it, it does. But it's also um, in the first sight, it produces a little paradox because um, scientists, of course, with the data very clearly on its side, established that the Big Bang happened something like 13.5 billion years ago. Uh, now, there was no conscious life around, certainly no human being around at that time. Temperatures are too high. So this causes a little paradox because how then the universe could collapse. Fortunately, uh, John Wheeler uh, first answered this question by suggesting an experiment, which is called delayed choice experiment. Um, we won't go into the details, but uh, it, it's, it's very simple. We have established experimentally in the laboratory that even if we make a choice with a delay, even though it appears that the uh, object is behaving in a very non-Newtonian way, uh, but still the non-Newtonian answer is the correct answer. Every object really remains as possibility until consciousness has collapsed it. So again, go back to what I said about biological evolution. So the universe evolves in possibility becomes galaxies, becomes stars, becomes second generation stars like the sun, becomes the earth, planets with oxygen atmosphere. With all this, the universe just waits in possibility. And then the first living cell arises also in possibility. But that moment, that possibility becomes actualized because the first living cell now can manifest with downward causation. So that's the moment of creation. So how does Big Bang happen? Big Bang happen in retrospect. All of that possibilities now go back even retroactively in time and will manifest, will appear to manifest just at the time it was supposed to have manifest in order to make this moment, this moment of manifestation possible. This is what the delayed choice experiment tells us, that with our choice going backward in time, all the events of the past can be reconstructed, taking place at their respective required time. So uh, we have really gone that far. We have with our laboratory, with an enormous power of experimentation today, have established such huge concepts as delayed choice, which removes such paradox. So, so what is the moment of creation? We can say Big Bang, yes, with some correctness, but we can verify Big Bang only with memory, only with the relic, like the three degree microwave radiation. We can, of course, not see it. So that's the key. So it exists only in our memory, and the memory happened in retrospect. It did not happen, Big Bang did not happen in truth, in actuality, 13.5 billion years ago. It happened when the first living cell, 
may not be Earth, of course. That would be too Earth-centric view. It could be other planets across the universe. But wherever it was, it was the first living cell, which was the beginning of the universe, manifest universe. If we take then consciousness as the the ground of being, is it absurd to th- even think about there being something behind it or before it? Well, uh, the, uh, you know, there is this there is this, um, there is this uh, philosophical puzzle. Can we uh, ever settle this question of you know there always has to be something behind? It is settled by saying that consciousness is the ground of being for a very very good reason, which is that if consciousness is the ground of being and it contains all possibilities, then think about it. All possibilities must include past, present, and future. So every possibility is included in this in this ground state. And so nothing can happen in this ground state. So how do things happen? Here, the esoteric spiritual traditions made a huge quantum leap in thought. They actually pointed it out that the only way that creation can happen is to let consciousness forget, the forgetfulness, let limitations come about. So indeed, these limitations are what we call the laws of physics. These limitations are what we call the creation of those possibilities only, which has meaning, which creates the mind, and those possibilities only, which gives us the the biological forms. And then the physical world is created, physical possibilities are created so that we can make representations. So if you take this view of uh, biological evolution, that evolution is preceded by an involution, involution which allows consciousness to forget its complete uh, wholeness, which is eternal, that's eternity. Then you don't don't have to answer what was before the eternity, because eternity is eternity. One of the things that we see, I mean, people will say perhaps that discussing these matters is all well and good, but you point out that when we understand that the quantum physics principles apply in the macro world, then we can begin to see ways out of the predicament that we've got ourselves into at the minute, which is the excessive and, and dominant materialism, uh, leads to sort of moral relativism and ethics as something rather abstract. And that has had a very uh, devastating effect on the politics, economics, the environment, health, education, all of this manifesting itself now in war and terrorism. Um, but this new perspective points a way forward for us, real world. And it's more not so much practical things, but it's once you have a different understanding, a different view of yourself and the world, then your actions flow from that and they change. Yes, it does. And also, you know, I, I, I think it's also quite practical. As I said, we will have very, very soon we'll have this uh, vital energy technologies which will revolutionize the economic arena. I, I think I think we should no longer disregard the uh, impact of the new economics that the new science will create. You know, the old adages like uh, money cannot buy love, money cannot buy happiness, if they are given up. And we realize that money can very well buy happiness and money can very well buy love. I don't mean uh, prostitution, sexuality. Money can buy love. You know, sex is just an entry point to love. It is not love, as everybody knows. Uh, But we can really, really do produce people in whose proximity you become loving. People who have worked with Mother Teresa, this is the greatest thing. As Jerry Brown, um, the California governor, we worked with her. This is the special thing about her proximity. You you become loving in proximity of such people. And I have been with people in whose proximity you become happy. 
my wife and I were traveling the banks of Ganges one day in a place called Rishikesh in India. And a door opens and they say that Laughing Baba is starting. Would you like to hear? We said yes. So we, I, I go in, we go in and we sit down and the Baba is talking on a platform. But if the talk is in Hindi, I couldn't keep my attention and Baba is not that charismatic. So I look around and all of a sudden I noticed a strange thing. Everybody in the audience has smile on his or her face. I look at my son. Yes, I too am smiling. Why? I recognize that because a fountain head has opened uh, of happiness. And that is what is making me smile. So I realized, oh, this is why this fellow is called Laughing Baba. In his presence, you start smiling with happiness. I have seen uh, another such person, also an American mystic called uh, Franklin Merrill Wolf. So uh, these people are already, uh, these people already exist in whose proximity you can experience happiness. So who says I cannot buy happiness? If we can learn to manufacture these people like as in a farm, uh, then we have it. We bring them to the city and open up an office for them. They just are. They just are in the way they are. And all we have to do is to is to go to their proximity and become happy. And who would refuse to pay $100 or whatever, $200 an hour for an hour of happiness? I would. So, you know, we can easily think of business enterprises and uh, business enterprises that can literally change the society. Because once you consume happiness, you'll be curious. Can I become a producer of happiness? And that's the beginning of the change of society. Yes, one of the issues that you address, uh, particularly in, uh, in the later quantum um, activist book, is the idea that there are ways around the sort of seeming, seemingly intractable situation that we have at the minute where society and economy is geared up for people so they don't have time or the ability to really uh, look at these issues and maybe think about their inner life and how that integrates with what's going on outside. Yes, because because people's livelihood is wasted so much in doing trivia, meaningless of, uh, uh, tasks. So, um, you know, the, um, there was even a New York Times columnist um, who wrote a beautiful column uh, suggesting that the part of the reason of joblessness, at least in America, is that people are no longer satisfied in getting a job as a hamburger flipper at a McDonald's joint. Instead, they want a meaningful job. And so things are changing. Uh, we, it is a fundamental right of developed economies like yours and mine, um, America and England and other uh, developed economies. It, it becomes almost a right that, look, we have gone through the stages of doing these trivial uh, jobs for economic uh, managing. We are not satisfied with just managing anymore. We want to pursue meaning even while we are at the job because it's not possible really to expect uh, do a meaningless jobs for eight hours a day and then come home and not flop before the telly or TV or whatever you call it. It's not possible because the mind becomes tired. So we have to process meaning and purpose while on the job. And this is the new challenge of the advanced economies, to gear the economy in such a way that it does that. And what I'm saying is that if we pay attention to it, we can do it even right now. We have the technology to measure mental states. We have the technology to measure states of feeling. We can quantify vital energy, and therefore we can make them object of economic uh, movement. And once we start doing that, 
people will become curious. Not only there will be consumers, of course there are consumers, but there will be ample people who will be capable of producing. And this match of producers and consumers, of course, is the basis of Adam Smith type capitalism. So uh, this is an extension of capitalism that I'm very actively proposing. And I think uh, this will eventually have the most impact in implementing this new science and the new paradigm and the new worldview. It's quite easy to see individuals on that level able to continue to evolve, move forwards and evolve out of the situation that they're in. And we can do it collectively. But one thing that concerns me is the institutions the based, you know, the materialistic science, uh, the institutions that have grown from that and the sort of command and control system that makes the world the way it is, that it's harder to get a corporation, even if a corporation is made up of individuals, it's harder to get a corporation to become more conscious. Well, it may not be so hard, you know, in the presidential election cycle um, last year, uh, in America, uh, there was this fellow, Mitt Romney, the Republican candidate, uh, who once said famously or infamously that corporations are humans. So my challenge to the corporations is, okay, I'll accept that you are human and you can give as much money in secret as possible to your uh, chosen candidate. Uh, that's all okay, but be a human then. What does a human being do? Human beings intuit. Human beings intuit values. So can you leave these values? So the, uh, one of the basic components of the new uh, economics of consciousness would be that the um, corporations have to become human. They really just not talk about being human. They have to become human, which is to humanize themselves, which is to have values, which is to have ethics, which is to uh, have purpose. And as corporations do that, uh, certainly we'll all be better for it. Many people observe in the world today that we are we're at a time of crisis, perhaps even a unique time of crisis, and that a lot of problems seem to be converging. But uh, from your perspective, this can be seen as basically a call to take an evolutionary leap. Yes, I think I, I see that as synchronicities. You mentioned the dinosaurs and, you know, a big, big event of synchronicity, probably the greatest event of synchronicity from the human point of view, from the evolution of humans was that extinction of dinosaurs. And uh, it, by all accounts, it seems like it could be a meteor uh, explosion that uh, caused it or that initiated it. Um, how does that happen? You know, uh, is, that, uh, is that conducive with the idea of creative evolution? You bet it is, because the whole idea of synchronicity is very interesting, as Carl Jung formulated it. An event takes place in the physical world, and an event takes place in the world of meaning in our psyche. And the two events has no seeming connection, no seeming correlation, and yet they're taking place together. Why? Because there is a purposiveness behind it. The purposiveness of quantum consciousness is very clear. It is to evolve. It's to evolve towards making greater and greater consciousness manifest on Earth. If that is the purpose, then obviously dinosaurs have to be extinguished. And therefore, although it boggles your mind to think that a physical event like a meteor shower, heavy meteor shower like that, and what happens in evolution can be related. But it all makes sense when we realize that consciousness is not just psyche, but it's psychoid, that's Jung's term. It's a, it involves both psyche and matter, and therefore 
a material event and a psychic event can take place simultaneously and there is no contradiction with purposiveness. So in this way, uh, what when, when people just see a play of mere chance and don't see the meaningfulness of the coincidence, I tell them that read about synchronicity and notice that when you are creative, every one of us, when we are creative, our life becomes full of synchronicities. This is a way of way of gauging if our life is in the right direction, because synchronicities will take place at much more copious rate than when our life is not in the right direction, not aligned with the purposiveness of consciousness. Um, this has been a fascinating discussion, and as I expected, uh, we didn't really get to touch upon even a fraction of the material. Uh, in the book, which just to remind people once again is God is not dead, what quantum physics tells us about our origins and how we should live. I mean, I could literally talk to you about these matters for days, I suspect, and maybe we'll get an opportunity to do that sometime. But perhaps we should wrap it up for today, and I'd simply encourage people to look at that book. And you have many other books on uh, consciousness and the nature of reality. Um, perhaps you'd like to share with listeners a bit of information about that, your website. Um, anything else you'd like to put out there? Have you got any events coming up and just what you're working on for the future? Yes, I'd, I'd love to do it. Thank you for giving the opportunity. Uh, please look at my website, uh, amitgoswami.org. That's my full name, A-M-I-T-G-O-S-W-A-M-I.org. And in that, there's a full schedule of all my events. Um, I went to England uh, last year in August, uh, but uh, this year maybe in November, but not before then. At least there is no immediate plan to go to England before then. But um, I will be uh, certainly in Europe in November. And um, there are quantum activism workshops that are now being made available in uh, Brazil the most. Uh, but also in America, and I'm trying to get a foothold in Europe, and it will happen soon, hopefully. Uh, so my final word with you is that look at this website, amitgoswami.org, uh, and there is another website called thequantumactivist.org. Look at these two websites and get a feel for what it takes to become a quantum activist. And then, you know, you read a few books. Uh, Self-Fire Universe is the beginning of my journey. Uh, that's a very important book, I think, uh, if I'm allowed to do a little self-advertisement. Uh, but the latest book, How Quantum Activism Can Save Civilization, is not an exaggeration. Really, we are going down the drain as far as civilization is concerned with scientific materialism to guide us. As Greg, uh, with his questions, made amply clear, and I hope my answers made some sense to you, at least made, made you curious. So find out more, because it is your responsibility to change the worldview. It's not just the scientists, it's not just the religionists with their one pole mind that's guiding you. That's not acceptable. It's ruining our civilization. All that we have developed in the 18th century with our open minds, with the philosophy of modernism. This postmodern pessimism cannot last. It has to give way to the new paradigm, to a new integrative worldview. And you are the future. You have to live up to it. Amit, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, Greg. Well, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please check out the website, legalize freedomcom 
where you'll find an archive of programmes on many equally fascinating topics. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.